This episode of the Whip Stitch Podcast is brought to you by the League of Dressmakers. The League of Dressmakers is an online video subscription club, but it is so much more than that. We are a community of folks who love to sew clothes for ourselves, share ideas, find our team, and explore the adventurous world of sewing with support, accountability, encouragement, and momentum. Come check it out, find your team, join our annual tournament, follow our video sew-alongs, and participate in our exclusive social media platform. It's all at League of Dressmakers, that's L-E-A-G-U-E of dressmakers.com. For the better part of a decade, I taught high school, including 10th grade, uh, 10th grade English language arts. And part of the curriculum for 10th grade language arts in the state of Georgia, where I live, is to cover the Holocaust. It's a pretty tough topic to cover no matter where you live. Here in the southeastern United States, discussion of any type of racial or cultural discrimination inevitably leads to discussion of the legacy that human slavery has left in our backyards, very literally. Um, Oprah Winfrey once did an interview with Elie Wiesel, the survivor of Auschwitz and author of Night, his documentation of his experience in the Holocaust. And um, Elie Wiesel pointed out that we don't compare our pain right? Like there's, what's the purpose? And the heartbreak of the concentration camps can't be held against the heartbreak of African slavery in the 19th century. But both of those experiences beg the question, according to him, what is there in evil that becomes so seductive to some people? When I was teaching the subject of the Holocaust, I used materials provided for free by the Southern Poverty Law Center, an organization located actually in my hometown of Montgomery, Alabama, whose mission is to combat hate, intolerance, and discrimination through education and litigation. It's really an impressive organization, and they have provided so many materials to classroom educators in order to discuss this idea of discrimination, hatred, uh, and, and the legacy of evil that leaves behind. They not only include primary documents related to the Jewish Holocaust and to the Southern Civil Rights Movement in America, but also the Japanese internment camps in the United States during the Second World War, which is to say concentration camps on U.S. soil where American citizens were incarcerated against their will during the Second World War. All of this relates very directly to our sewing, how we sew, why we sew, and what sewing does for us. And that is what we're talking about on this episode of the Whip Stitch Podcast. Thanks for listening. For spring break a few years ago, my husband and I took our children to Southern California and we saw Disneyland and we saw the Channel Islands and we saw Joshua Tree National Park. Um, But whenever we see a particular part of the country, we try to hit as many of the national park properties as we possibly can. There are currently, I think, 64 actual national parks like capital N, capital P, NP national parks in the United States. But there are more than 450 national park properties, which includes national monuments, national battlefields, national scenic river trails, all kinds of different things. Um, And so anytime that we see something, like we go to a particular place like Joshua Tree National Park, internationally famous for being beautiful and special 
uh, you know, the band U2's album Joshua Tree partly was based on their experience seeing Joshua Tree National Park on their first world tour. Um, so everybody's familiar with those, but a lot of the smaller national park properties are less familiar to a lot of people and also hugely impactful in terms of our understanding the history and the fabric, if you'll forgive the pun, of, of our national identity. So during spring break, we went and visited one of the most famous of the Japanese internment camps in California. It's called Manzanar. You may not think that you've heard of Manzanar, but you have. If you watched the original film version, Karate Kid, and you saw Mr. Miyagi mourning the death of his wife and son, there's a scene where Danielson comes in and Mr. Miyagi is clearly inebriated and weeping, and Daniel tucks him into bed and discovers this telegram. The telegram, if you look at that scene more closely, indicates that Mr. Miyagi's wife and son died at Manzanar. If you loved the original television series Star Trek, like the first Star Trek, then you are familiar with Lieutenant Sulu, played by the actor George Takei. He spent part of his childhood living at Roer, another camp similar to Manzanar, not specifically Manzanar, but another Japanese internment camp in the United States. If you are younger than either of those two cultural references, then perhaps in the past 15 years, you read a young adult novel called Farewell to Manzanar, which was written specifically for younger readers about the experiences of children living in these Japanese internment camps. It's such a hard story to tell. So this is sort of the nutshell version, if this is your first time hearing this. Fearful that Japanese individuals living in America would feel a greater allegiance to the emperor of Japan than the United States. The U.S. government made the decision to centralize Japanese Americans in camps like Manzanar for their protection, was the argument. This is um, after Pearl Harbor, but still fairly early days of World War II in the U.S. The argument by the government was that Japanese Americans were a security risk. So the entire West Coast of the United States was made off limits for anyone with Japanese ancestry, including both Issei, those who were born in Japan and emigrated to the U.S., and who may or may not have obtained U.S. citizenship, and the Nisei, those of Japanese ancestry who were born in the U.S. and by definition were American citizens by birth. The area of the state of California set aside for Manzanar, one of the most famous of these camps, is west of Death Valley, east of the Sierra Nevada mountain range. It is breathtakingly beautiful. It is jaw-dropping. The mountains are 6,000 plus feet above the valley floor, but they feel as though they are at your fingertips. The wind whips the snow from the peaks with this constant tugging power, and you can see it from where you are standing. The wind, the wind never dies, ever. It is this all-encompassing presence at Manzanar. The wind there tugged our clothes away from our shoulders. It pushed at us. It tangled our hair. It is as real a part of Manzanar as the buildings, as the sandy soil that gets into every crack. It gets into your shoes. It gets into your socks. It gets into your teeth. This is desert country. 
There are desolate stretches near Manzanar that seem devoid of all life. It is not a hospitable place to live. So at the time of the Japanese attacks on Pearl Harbor, December 1941, Approximately 120,000 men, women, and children of Japanese ancestry were living in the United States, which, I mean, I'm an American, born an American. This is a nation rife with racial prejudice. We're not the only nation like that, but it is a part of our national experience. In that environment, the Japanese community found itself under concerted efforts to isolate and eradicate them. Although many of them were born... On U.S. soil, they were absolutely fully citizens of the U.S. Processes were put in place December 1941 and on to move all Japanese Americans away from the, quote, military areas, which were defined in this case as parts of the U.S. closest to Japan and therefore at greatest risk from spies and Japanese on U.S. soil who were loyal to the emperor. Um, And for the government, this included the entire West Coast, from Southern California to Washington State. So in February 1942, the U.S. is fully at war with Japan. Franklin D. Roosevelt signs Executive Order 9066. While it was not specifically worded with this intent, that executive order authorized the removal of all individuals of Japanese ancestry, both immigrants and born citizens, away from these military areas and two neutral territories, mostly in the central United States. The camp at Manzanar, in this desolate, windswept, sandy area between the desert and the mountains, was one of these evacuation areas. All of them, these evacuation areas, were called internment camps or relocation centers. But for all intents and purposes, these were concentration camps for American citizens on American soil. I mean, Manzanar, it's this breathtaking place. The air whips around you. The mountains tower over you. The desert sand flies ahead of you as you walk the trails. But those trails were built by the hands of individuals who had only days to gather their worldly possessions, load themselves onto buses with their families, and arrive at a destination where they knew nothing and no one. Even the buildings to house them had not yet been constructed when they arrived. The barracks at Manzanar were built by the people who arrived to live in them. They left behind businesses and homes. Those things were no longer considered their property because the individuals had been denied due process and rights to citizenship. And I I say all that, this is not opinion. These are the facts as written today by the United States government looking back on the events of 1942. These people were denied due process and the rights to citizenship. When they returned to their homes later, years later, there was nothing left. Each of these families were assigned registration numbers. Their belongings were cataloged and confiscated. And by November 1942, the relocation was complete. All of those with Japanese ancestry had been transported to one of 10 camps east of California. What does this have to do with sewing and a sewing blog? When we were there, my family and I, so my husband and I took our three youngest children to visit Manzanar, and they have really an exceptionally well-executed visitor center at this particular, it currently is considered a national monument, not a national park. And in that visitor center, 
And I don't know how familiar you might be with some of the national park properties, but most of them have like a little theater where you can go and you can watch a video presentation. They're generally between, I don't know, four and 20 minutes in length. It gives you a broad overview of what that particular national park property represents as a part of American culture. So it might be And this is a part of the country that was preserved for its natural beauty, like Shenandoah National Park. Um, Or this might be a part of the country that was preserved for its historical importance, like uh, in Philadelphia, where, you know, we have the the building where the Declaration of Independence was signed. Um, And so it gives you sort of a broad overview of why American people thought this place was important enough to be preserved and set aside. And a lot of the national parks, when you go into the visitor center... (laughs) I mean, you walk through the gift shop, you guys. That's how you get in. Um, and and you, you actually have to be somewhat familiar with how things work. Usually you walk through and the gift shop and the ranger station are co-located. And so there's a ranger there at the counter and they answer questions and they pass out junior ranger handbooks if you want to participate in the junior ranger program or they'll give you hiking trail maps or... Um, you know, provide a service. Uh, we we absolutely adore every national park ranger we've ever met. They're such a great group of people. Um, but frequently you see them first. That's the first thing you encounter as you walk in. At Manzanar, as I recall it, the first thing we encountered was the theater. Like you enter and you, you know, there's like a vestibule sort of as you come in. And you could go straight into the museum. But as I recall, off to the left, there was a, a theater that you could enter more or less immediately. So a lot of us, as we travel, you know, you're you're not at home, you're in an unfamiliar place. And so maybe you're a little bit on autopilot. This particular building was structured in such a way that were you on autopilot, you would immediately go in and watch the video. And I cannot commend that approach for Manzanar enough. Um, because you go in and you get a real understanding of what happened there, why this place matters. I knew about it because of my work teaching these materials provided by the Southern Poverty Law Center. My husband was not familiar with it. My children were not familiar with it. They didn't really understand what it was we were about to experience. Um, we begin to see all these displays of what daily life was like at Manzanar and by extension at the other Japanese internment camps during World War II. And I was struck on this visit by how frequently sewing and handmade items were housed, displayed, discussed, how big a part, how central a part that was in the lives of the individuals who lived there. They had to build their own barracks when they arrived. They had nothing. Whatever they could put in a suitcase or carry on their back, that is what they took with them. And it was all they owned when they left. So everything inside these internment camps was made by the people who lived there, which is why what most astonished me about Manzanar was the reaction of the community. They arrived at one of the most desolate and lonely locations I have ever encountered, surrounded by high fences and barbed wire. Not that it mattered because there was nowhere to go. (laughs) They were hemmed in by desert and mountains on every side. But in that place, they built gardens and ponds and homes, workplaces, 
cemeteries, hospitals. Um, the signs still stand at this national site. The, the signs stand where they would send their kids to school, where they would have sock hops and weddings, where they buried their dead, where they celebrated victories, where they fought for peace here in this concentration camp. We saw where they built factories built by Japanese who had been evicted from their homes and transported away from civilization, built so they could voluntarily contribute to their nation's war effort from behind barbed wire fences. The young men at Manzanar, and this is true at every other relocation center, according to the materials presented in the visitor center, um, the young men at Manzanar were given the opportunity to enlist in the United States Armed Forces. And they did so at disproportionately high rates, despite the fact that it was really challenging for these citizens of Japanese descent to enlist. Because in order to join the military, they had to denounce their allegiance to the Japanese emperor, something the Nisei, the ones born in the United States, couldn't do because they had no loyalty to denounce. They were American citizens. They had no political ties to Japan. Um, but it was equally a troubling question for the Issei, born in Japan, but immigrants to the U.S. Because as Japanese citizens living in America, denouncing the emperor meant they couldn't ever go back to Japan. And despite their willingness to sign up for the military and fight for the U.S., that is a really difficult and permanent line for a lot of them to cross. Eventually, they reworded, the United States military reworded the question in a way that made it simpler and clearer to answer and didn't ask enlistees to claim or deny loyalty they didn't hold, right? So thousands of Japanese Americans joined the 422nd Infantry, which became one of the most decorated units in World War II. Back at the internment camps, those who did not enlist, the women and men there worked behind the scenes to weave camouflage nets for the army, to sew uniforms, and they did that in factories that they built themselves. Alongside those factories, small cottage industries sprang up. Tailors and seamstresses from their prior lives began to offer their services to families inside the barbed wire to create clothing for them. According to one source, one popular shop took in, are you ready? 220 orders a week, all sewn by hand because they didn't have sewing machines until 1943. What? Residents of the internment camps refashioned World War I surplus garments into fashionable clothing, like pea coats and men's shirts. They turned into dresses, dress shirts, slacks, skirts for the families inside the camps to wear. So having seamstresses and tailors inside the camps was essential. It wasn't just for providing adequate clothing for the citizens in the camps. They also needed them for basic necessities. It took three months after the buses arrived before they got shower curtains because they had to sew them themselves so that the internees could bathe in privacy. As many as 50 dozen shower curtains because the common complaint was that the communal showers lacked privacy and there was no other way to address it besides making their own shower curtains. Eventually, the seamstresses in the camp would make dish towels, aprons for the mess hall staff, mailbags for their own internal mail service. They made smocks for the barbers. Everything that they needed for the practicalities of life in a large community had to be constructed in the camps by the members of the camps. 
But sewing served another purpose as well. And I was really struck by this as we walked through and saw the different displays um, from the citizens at Manzanar. What I noticed was this sort of invisible underpinning that sewing allowed the culture and identity of these families to continue, even inside the camps. When they arrived, I mean, they had no idea how long their incarceration would last or if it would ever end. That was not, it was a very open-ended thing. So the attempts of these families to bring beauty, to uh, tradition, a sense of belonging with them was essential in, in helping them to endure the years that followed. I also noticed as I looked through um, a photo archive, um, you can find those online and I've linked them in the show notes. Um, the National Archives has a number of photographs. Um, you can also see the uh, from the National Historic Site, the website for the National Park has a number of really beautiful photographs taken inside the camps. As I looked through these, I noticed the ways in which sewing allowed people inside the camps to build trust, to create lasting friendships. Um, All but a very, very few of the families in these camps were Japanese in origin, but most of them were strangers to one another. Um, They were forced to start from scratch, building new networks, new relationships, a new community. And so the ability to, to sow small gifts, tokens, in a place where every resource was so scarce gave them a way to to link themselves to one another so i i'm just so grateful to the national park service for creating this memorial for the hardships that the internees endured more than that i am so grateful for the snapshots of the lives they lived inside those fences and many of the men and women who arrived at manzanar didn't know how to sew, right? And as soon as you think about that just for a second, you're like, well, yeah, it's not like they were all tailors and seamstresses. No, they didn't. They learned to sew while they were there. And they did it as a practical measure. They needed more hands in order to create the necessary items for daily life. Um, They did it to earn money because some of these people started businesses sewing inside the camps. But they also did it for recreation, They did it to connect to others. They did it to create community. Sewing was something that gave them meaning and purpose and relationship when every one of those things had been taken away from them in a very real, practical, tactile way. Sewing tied this large group of strangers together into a community. Tensions still ran high, you know, and, and you can see that in the stories. Some of the people who are in the camps, you, they brought their outside lives with them. And so there were still fights that broke out. I mean, obviously, life was difficult. There seemed to be, however, something tangible in sewing that improved their time together. And it leaves this legacy for us today. In 1988, U.S. President Ronald Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act. This act acknowledged that the United States government behaved against due process, that the internment centers were unconstitutional. The U.S. government formally apologized for Manzanar and the other camps and paid financial restitution to every family 
that resided there. It took 10 years of congressional lobbying by Japanese-American groups to gain approval for the Civil Liberties Act. Sewing was not ancillary to these events. Whether you have a direct family tie to the Japanese internment camps of World War II, or if this is your very first time discovering that this is a part of American history, it is impossible to picture the lives of these individuals and not appreciate that sewing was not an afterthought or a footnote to, to the years they spent at Manzanar. It was central to the experiences of the people who lived there and in all the internment camps. Sewing was a skill that was brought with them from the outside, something that had value both before in their lives before and then inside the fence. Sewing was an activity that made use of the time they had when their homes and jobs were taken from them a way for them to be useful again, a way for them to connect with themselves and with others and to connect to the war effort. Sewing became this patriotic activity that allied them with the nation they called home, where they were working on American soil for American soldiers, sewing uniforms for those who'd gone to war, which included their own sons. This was a community they built amongst themselves a way of finding security and interdependence with others sharing their circumstances, a method of making something beautiful from an uncertain future. Sewing gave them an opportunity to make a statement of their identity with intentionality, with purpose, with care. And so my point in sharing this story is that sewing creates the world around us. In, in not small ways, every day, wartime and peace. This is not a secondary part of our days or a secondary part of our lives. It is literally the thread that ties us together. Manzanar is this painful reminder of that beautiful truth. Remembering the lives that were lived there gives power to the magic of sewing. I am so grateful that this part of American history is memorialized and that I have the opportunity to share it and you have the opportunity to visit. Um, I was incredibly affected by our visit there. I was startled to discover myself in front of plate glass display cases, looking on quilts and dolls and seat cushions and, and feeling so moved that I needed a moment to collect myself. Um, because I was looking at these images of women sewing. Women who could have been any one of us if circumstances were different. Watching them laughing, drafting patterns, making dresses to go to dances, using needle and thread to make a better life. So, this is part of a series that I did on my blog at Whipstitch called Great Women of Sewing, and it is my tribute to the seamstresses of Manzanar who sewed a better world together. Thanks for listening.